I need your help with something. I wrote a letter to my wife this week expressing my love to her, and she did not appreciate it. <laughs> so if I read it to you, would you tell me where I went? <clears throat> Only in one Dearest Ebony, these last five years we've spent together have been some of the best of my life. Off to a strong start, I think. I'm captivated by your beauty. I love your long, flowing blonde hair and your blue eyes. Many men would be put off by a woman who's taller than them, not me. I love the way you tower over me, making me feel safe in your presence. I'm so proud of your accomplishments in swimming. I can't wait to watch you compete. Love always, Brian. Surely any woman would love to receive a letter like this uh, expressing undying devotion and affection from their husband, right? Surely any woman would love to get a letter like this. What's wrong with this letter? Uh, Nathan, can you pull up that picture of me and my wife? That ain't her. That ain't her. Um, I mentioned the five years we've spent together. Ebony and I are uh, just past the 15 mark, coming up on 16 in January. Yeah, yeah. I know I don't look it. I know I don't. I complimented her blonde hair and blue eyes, but she has black hair and brown eyes. Well, hair's a little silver now. A little bit, a little bit. Oh, she embraces it. Don't know. I'm not in trouble. She embraces it. I complimented her height, and she's about a half a foot shorter than me. And uh, this woman did a sprint triathlon and spent the majority of her training figuring out how to swim. So swimming competitions are off the table for her. The real issue with a letter like this is that sincere though it may seem, it's written to a different person. No amount of passion can compensate for a lack of precision. I can be as passionate as I want to be about whoever this person is, but if, if I'm not talking about or describing the person I'm addressing, the passion means nothing, right? right? Without precision, a letter like this doesn't convey love, at least not to Ebony. Today, we're exploring statement three from LifeWay Research's State of Theology survey. If you're just joining us, if you missed last week, let me give you kind of an intro. Uh, every two years, LifeWay Research, in partnership with Ligonier Ministries, does what they call the State of Theology survey. A and they poll Americans, and then they, they get data from the people that they're polling so that they can actually uh, segment the data with great refinement, even down to your theological stream. And what we're responding to in this series that we've called Culturally Incorrect is what I would call cultural Christianity. We're responding to uh, alarming statements that were agreed to by a, a startling number of self-proclaimed evangelical Christians. Now, I had someone last week ask me, Pastor, what qualifies someone as an evangelical Christian? Here's what qualifies you as an evangelical Christian in as much as you are one, if in fact you are one, you are one because you believe that you've been given good news to proclaim. That's literally what evangelical means. And so we are not 
Roman Catholic, that's a different segment of the audience. Um, we are evangelical. We are conservative, Bible-believing Christians. Conservative meaning we believe that the Bible is true in what it states and in what it proclaims and in what it teaches. So today our, our ambition is to explore statement three from the State of Theology survey. The statement reads this way. This is what they saw on the survey when they responded the way that they did. Here's the statement. Quote, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Now, you would actually expect the average American to respond to this in the affirmative because we, we so emphasize tolerance in our culture and, and coexistence in our culture that you would expect that the average American would respond to this in the affirmative. But this one in particular is a big problem for Christians, proclaimed Christians. In 2020, so four years ago, 42% of evangelical Christians agreed with this statement. Just two years later, that number grew to 56%. So what this demonstrates is that there's a slide that's happening among Christians, among people like you. And so I said this last week, and I'll say it again. If it's out there, my guess is that it's somewhere in here. Somewhere where the, the way that we swim in the waters of culture uh, seven days a week has influenced what we believe about what we believe. Do we believe that Jesus is the only way? Do we believe that this book is true? Do we believe that our God, Yahweh, the, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who expresses himself and reveals himself fully and perfectly through his son, Jesus Christ, do we believe that that God accepts worship that is assigned to another God? And, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll defend that claim shortly. Bless you. So I'll invite you to join me in John chapter 4 this morning as we set out to answer this question. Does God accept the worship of all religions? And in one sense, the answer to this question is simple. And in another, it, it actually requires some unpacking and some explanation. Does God accept the worship of all religions? The short answer is no. Not the God of Scripture. If you're going to hold to this book, we cannot say that the God of the Bible accepts the worship of all religions. We cannot. And that's not us being intolerant. That's us trusting that he has faithfully revealed himself through the book as he truly is. So the short answer is no. The long answer is no. But there is, baked into the question, a series of assumptions that are worth unpacking in order for us to settle into that answer. Because here's my guess, is you are, again, like, hey, seven days a week, and probably the majority of you for most of your life, you've been an American. And so it's, it's hard to push against what we feel as the, the tide of culture that pulls us into this place of tolerance that says, of course, God, the same God, the God of Scripture, the Christian God, accepts the worship of Jews and Muslims. Of course he does, right? 
And that's the influence of culture pulling us into that. So I want, I want to walk us up to this and I want to, I want to show you from Scripture that to assume that the God of Scripture receives worship that is assigned to someone else would be like writing him a love letter and describing him inaccurately. It would be like writing him a love letter and describing him inaccurately. And if he did not receive it, our prideful response, if we expected him to, would be, why does he not? Why does he not? I offered it with sincerity, and it doesn't matter how much sincerity you offer it with if you are inaccurate. Passion means precision. So we have, we have to investigate which God we're talking about and whether all religions truly worship the same God and what, what would it mean that he would accept our worship. Today, what we're going to find in John 4, and, and, and if I had more time, I would show you in Scripture as a whole uh, this point. And if you take notes, this is a good one to write down. I love you so much. I made the whole thing, most of it, alliterate. Uh, and it's this, praise that pleases God prioritizes both passion and precision. It is not one without the other. Praise that pleases God prioritizes both passion and precision. Now, hopefully you found John 4, and if you have, I'll invite you to stand on your feet. If you're new to resurrection, we read big chunks of Scripture. You'll have to forgive me for that. I just haven't learned how to be brief yet. Um, so John, 5, uh, John 4, verses 5 through 26 is our text for today. A very familiar text and a beautiful text, if, even if you just take it for what it says. And we'll begin in verse 5. So he, Jesus, came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Joseph's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. That's about noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Pause for just a second. That's that's going to be something we're going to unpack a little bit. That's, that is pertinent to our discussion today. Why do Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? We'll come to it. Uh, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I will not be thirsty and have to come here to draw water. If, if you're not picking up on it, this is a comedy. I mean, it's just like, she is not getting what he's saying. She wants water and he's offering something different jesus said to her go call your husband and come here the woman answered him i have no husband jesus said to her you're right in saying i have no husband for you've had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband what you've said is true the woman said to him sir i perceive that you're a prophet <laughs> our fathers worshiped on this mountain but you say that in jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship jesus said to her woman Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship 
What you do not know, if, if, you're, if you're a highlighter, if you're an underliner, that's worth notating. That's where we're going to focus in a lot of our time today. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Before you take your seats, let me pray for us. Father, uh, we lay ourselves open before your word today. Would you search us and know us? Would you, by your spirit, use your word to convict our hearts concerning sin and righteousness and judgment? Father, worthy are you to receive glory and honor and power and praise. We belong to a hard-headed and a stiff-necked generation. And many of us fall into those patterns. Father, forgive us. Teach us this morning from your word that we might stand for what's true. Teach us this morning from your word what it means to worship you in spirit and in truth and draw us in to worship you in spirit and in truth. Thank you, Father, for your patience with us. Teach us more. We pray in Jesus' name. All God's people agreed and said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. A wonderfully familiar story for us this morning. Here's my guess is if you've been a Christian for any length of time, this is a text that is familiar territory for you. Probably one of your favorite stories in the Bible. For many people it is. This is a, a beautiful story. And, and honestly, I mean, you could, you could go a whole series through all of the nuance that's packed into this story. This is the first person, as far as we can tell chronologically in the ministry of Jesus, this is the first person to find out that he's the Messiah. No small scandal that it's a Samaritan. This is a beautiful story. But for our purposes today, what does this story teach us about worship? Well, in order to understand what Jesus is saying about worship, we actually, we need to understand that conflict between Jews and Samaritans. If we don't get that, we're going to miss out on what's really happening here and a lot of the, the unspoken nuance. When that Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John adds that really helpful note, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. This one verse is just loaded. I mean, literally books of the Bible of Old Testament context. And if you're a Bible, even if you are a Bible scholar, I actually, we covered this. This was recent. This was just a few weeks ago at ResU. Uh, we had covered, I, I had talked about what I'm about to talk about with you now. And I had people who were seasoned Christians who said, I never understood that. I never understood that. And I think that if you don't understand the conflict with Jews and Samaritans, the Bible gets really confusing for you after 2 Kings. Like you get on the other side of 2 Kings and you kind of get lost. And so I'm going to do my best to do some unpacking. And, and if you want something more in-depth around this, all of our Resurrection University teachings are on YouTube and available on the website. It was our teaching specifically on Judaism uh, as we were talking about uh, interfaith dialogue, uh, I got to teach on Judaism, and, and this was kind of some of what I had unpacked. 
But during Solomon's reign, Israel was so prosperous that all of the neighboring kingdoms wanted a piece of it. And so these kings started shipping their daughters to Jerusalem to marry the king so that they could develop essentially peace treaties and, and, and trade agreements with Israel. So kings from all over the nation are all over the region are sending their daughters, establishing partnerships. <clears throat> and in 1 Kings 11, 1 through 3, we read this. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, foreign women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. That is a very important line. God foretells what will happen if they intermarry. And this isn't about racial intermarriage. You already saw my family dynamic. This is about, this is about intermarriage of systems. When you intermarry with the people who serve other gods, they will turn your heart away from the Lord after their God. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. At the end of Solomon's reign, because of his unfaithfulness, when he goes to hand the, the crown off, the kingdom is divided. And so... Uh, ten of the tribes of Israel loved this guy, Jeroboam, and two of the tribes of Israel followed this guy, Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the son of Solomon and would have been the rightful heir to the throne. Jeroboam was the challenger of the throne, and only the tribes of Judah and Benjamin followed Rehoboam, while the ten other tribes followed Jeroboam. Both, king, both kingdoms, and I've got to do some really quick work, both kingdoms uh, within the next couple of generations would be uh, carried away into captivity, into exile. Israel would be conquered by Assyria and Judah would be conquered by Babylon separately. And then after 70 years of exile, God allows them to return to their land. But when the 10 tribes, the 10 uh, northern tribes would return, they would be such a a mixed and intermingled people. They followed actually in the footsteps of Solomon, intermarrying with other faith systems. And when they came back, it was indiscernible uh, whether they were still the people of God. And so they were seen from that moment forward by the southern tribes, which again is Judah and Benjamin. And, and so these two kingdoms would come to be known, the ten tribes would come to be known as the kingdom of Israel, and the southern tribes, the two, Judah and Benjamin, would come to be known as the kingdom of Judah, or for short, the Jews. So if you've ever wondered why we have all these different names for this same people group, this is why. The kingdom of Judah would see the kingdom of Israel as impure, unclean, and barbaric heretics, due in part to their ethnic impurity, but mostly because of what we would call religious syncretism. Uh, syncretism is the practice by which we incorporate elements of other faith systems, different religions, into our faith system. So we're borrowing from the neighboring people groups and kind of creating a, a faith that is unfaithful to what it originally was and, and just an amalgamation of the belief systems of the surrounding people groups. And you and I today in 2023 in the United States of America live in an age of great religious syncretism. 
I mean, you, you see evidence of this all the time. Like, right, we, we, just, we just observed some folks, uh, Dia de los Muertos. Uh, and that is uh, observed primarily by, um, by Latino Catholics. And it is not at all a Christian practice. Um, it's the evidence of the product of syncretism, the melding together of two belief systems to make one indiscernible belief system. If you want to know whether or not your, your personal faith is a product of syncretism, I've got four questions you can ask yourself, um, and we'll kind of go through them real quick. Are there elements of my religious practices that seem to be borrowed or integrated from other cultures? Is there anything that I do that I can't justify from the book? Are there distinctive rituals, festivals, or ceremonies in my faith that seem to have origins in multiple religious traditions? Three, does your personal faith expression value an inclusive approach to spirituality and beliefs? Is that a personal value that you have in your faith? And then four, as a percentage, how much of my view of God is informed by my own reading of Scripture? And if you said yes to any of the first three, and if your answer to number four was anything less than 50 or 60%, because inevitably we develop some of our view of God in community. That's part of why this is so important. And, and, and I don't want to say that if, if it's not 100%, you're doing it wrong. Like, like we do this in community. Uh, but if your personal view of God is more than half developed outside of your own reading of Scripture, you are at great risk of religious syncretism because now the voices and opinions of other people weigh heavier in your assessment of who God is than who God says he is. This is why we as a people need to be constantly in God's word, both individually and corporately, studying the word of God on our own and in community where we can ask questions. One of my favorite things about Wednesday nights if you don't come on Wednesdays and you're free on Wednesdays, you ought to. Because at the end of the teaching, we have a text line and you can send in a question. Anything goes. And Pastor Jake, who is one of the most brilliant minds I've ever met in my life, will stand up here and, and he will answer your questions. And sometimes the answer is, let me find out. But we work through these things together so that we can build our concept for God based on his word and not the opinions of other people. But this syncretism, this is why Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. This is why this woman is shocked and appalled when Jesus asks her for a drink of water. And this is why the woman, when pressed about her failed marriages and her current living arrangement, changes the subject to worship. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Again, if you're not laughing, you're not paying attention. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Uncomfortable with his awareness of her shame, her sin, her pain, she changes the subject to worship. The woman is referring to what is a long-standing tradition, actually a, a longer-standing tradition than the temple itself. So worshipping on where they are at this point, and again, it's not obvious in the text, uh, but where they are at this point is on Mount Gerizim. And, and this would have been a, a place of worship for the people of God long before the building of the temple in Jerusalem. 
we can actually find the first evidence of worship on Mount Gerizim in Genesis 12, when Abraham builds an altar to God in a place called Shechem, uh, which comes later to be called Sychar, which is where they are. For Jesus, her changing of the subject is just the perfect opportunity to move the conversation exactly where he wanted to go from the start. He didn't want to talk about water to begin with. And this is why he's talking about it in the way that he is. He actually, he doesn't change his subject. She does, but he continues. He's talking about living water. She's talking about water, water. And now she's talking about worship. And he's like, ah, just what I wanted to talk about. Her people's syncretism have robbed her, prevented her from truly participating in worship. So Jesus says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, he's gentle here, but this is a correction. You worship what you do not know. And worshiping what you do not know is not true worship. It's not true worship. And, and, and we know that because of where he goes next in the text. The hour is coming and is now here when what kind of worshipers? True worshipers. You worship what you do not know. That's not true worship. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Syncretism dilutes the practice of worship to the point that it is no longer true worship, whatever it may be. Right? So worship, sometimes when we think about worship, we are most inclined to think about singing. Right? That's actually, that's what we call that part of Sunday morning. We call that worship time. Right? We come together and we sing. But worship is, is actually about how you everything. Right? It's how you everything with the everything that you've been given. Right? Like you can worship in how you manage your finances. You can worship in how you do your job. So here, here's what scripture says, right? Whatever you do, do it with all your heart as unto the Lord God, because it's him that you're working for. The Bible says that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Like you can worship God while eating a cheeseburger. You can do it. Amen. Amen. Or chicken nuggets, Jackie. I know you, Jackie. <laughs> a good cheeseburger should, or some chicken nuggets, should move your heart to worship. It's how you everything. And if you have a diluted view of God because of religious syncretism, you will ultimately lose sight of what true worship is. And all of a sudden, if you're not worshiping truly, what are you doing? You're worshiping falsely. If you, don't, if you don't abide by true worship, you abide by false worship. Like that is the necessary uh, opposite. That's the other component. And this is why I told you, praise that pleases God prioritizes both passion and precision. Jesus says that worship is a matter of both passion and precision, of spirit and of truth. Not one or the other, but both. So if you've ever wondered, if you've ever wondered, why is resurrection so theological, right? Like everything we do is like theology heavy. 
Like our pastors use $8 Bible college words from the pulpit all the time. And, and if I show up on Wednesday, it's literally a college class. Like why is this such a big deal? Why theology? Why doctrine? Why? Why truth? Because truth matters. Truth matters in worship. Truth matters in your life, right? Like you are a theologian. You don't get a choice in the matter. As soon as you begin to say something about God, what you're doing is theology. Theology is literally the study of God. Theos, God, logos, study. The study of God, like biology is the study of life. Theology is the study of God. And as soon as you presume to know anything about him, you're doing theology. So the question is not, are you doing theology? The question is, are you doing it well? Are you doing it accurately? Are you doing it according to how he has revealed himself? Because this God loves you so much that he has seen fit to reveal himself to you with great detail. What he likes and what he doesn't like. What he approves of and what he condemns. And how great love is for you that in spite of the fact that you had consistently chosen the things that he does not approve of, he sent his son to pay the price for the sin that you had committed so that you might have a chance to know him. Praise God. Like this God has seen fit to make himself known to you. Jesus says that worship is a matter of passion and precision. Truth matters to God, so it has to matter to us. He says that if we don't worship him in truth, we're worshiping falsely. True worshipers worship in spirit and in So here at Resurrection, we want to sing, read, preach, and rejoice in what is true. Because here, like, I don't care what story someone might manufacture about the God of their own imagination. It is not as good as this one. It is not as good as this one. Because whatever story someone else can manufacture with the God of their own imagination, it, it always fails to take into consideration my desperate need to be saved. And, and I've, I've heard false narratives about a syncretized God of their own imagination, and it always fails to take into consideration my desperate need for a Savior. Only this book, only this story deals honestly with me about me and then invites me to be received and accepted and beloved as a child of God. And I actually, if I'm being honest and just purely academic, I can't believe it. But by God's Spirit, He affirms in me that it's true. He affirms in me that it's true. And here's what I mean, is He gives me desires to obey Him that I didn't have before I knew the good news. He affirms in me and in you. I pray that he does this in you too. I hope it's not just me. He affirms in us that it's true. He's not, this is not about filling our heads with data points. I, I've had people accuse me of that before because I am. I'm a theology nerd. I, I, like I just read this stuff for fun. I, I love drinking deep in the character and nature of who God is. I love tying my brain in knots around things that I can't understand, like the Trinity. How is God three and one at the same time? It's literally outside the ability to comprehend. Like, I love it. And I've had people accuse me before 
of being one of those people Jesus actually um, combats in John's Gospel when he says, you search the Scriptures day and night thinking that in them you have life, but it is they that testify to me. I've had people bring me that verse before and say, Pastor, I'm really concerned because you're so serious about this book. Are you sure that you're not one of these people who searches the Scriptures thinking that in them you have life and, and missing what they're pointing to? And, I, and here's what I'm saying. is like, God gave us this book. And this is his self-disclosure about himself. Like my aim is not to fill my head with data points. I, uh, we, as a community, we inform our minds that we might inflame our hearts with love for God as he truly is. Not a God of our own imagination, but the God of scripture. Because like I'm telling you, this book is way better than any story that you could ever concoct on your own. We inform the mind to inflame the heart. We don't just want truth. We want truth that transforms us. Truth that transforms our behaviors. I, 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 I don't want to see God from down here. I want him to bring me up so that I can see him up here, that I might experience awe at who he is. And here's most often what I find is that churches do one or the other really well. Churches are either spirit churches or they're truth churches. They do one or the other really well to the neglect of the other. They're either highly passionate, they're a spirit church, or they're highly doctrinal, they're a truth church. And here's what I want. I want resurrection to be a spirit and truth church. Like, that, like that's, that's what I'm after. I'm after truth that transforms. I'm not after emotionalism. So, so spirit without truth is emotionalism. Uh, keep it. I don't want it. I, I don't want to be emotional for the sake of emotion. But truth without spirit is intellectualism. And as appealing as that is to me, I don't want that either. True worship requires both spirit and truth. We're pursuing precision about God and passion toward God. It's both. It has to be both. So does Yahweh accept the worship of all religions? No. You cannot mush Yahweh and Brahman together. You cannot mush Yahweh and Allah together. You cannot mush Yahweh and Baha'u'llah together. You can't do it. They're, they're, they're so incompatible. Like to try to do that is to just be ignorant about how each of these gods reveals themselves in their own holy texts. You can't pretend they're the same. So I'll just, I'll just, I'll take Allah, for instance, in the Quran, in Surah 3, verse 54, the Quran says that Allah is, quote, the greatest deceiver of all. And yet... Scripture teaches about our God that he cannot lie. These are, just on that basis alone, completely incompatible. Completely incompatible. Those who think they're the same just prove that they don't truly know anything about either of them. Because we're so syncretized that we, like the woman of Samaria, and hopefully not we, right? But those 56% of evangelical Christians who said they believe that God receives the worship of all people groups, those people 
those people have just proven that they don't know anything about either of those gods because they're so syncretized. They've so mushed it all together that they, like the woman at the well, worship what they do not know. And, and hey, I, I feel like it's worth pointing this out. Like if you're there, like if you hear me talking and you're like, uh, I don't want to raise my hand, but that's me. I, I, I would have said that I thought that. I'm so glad you're here. Like no shame, no shame, you're here. Like I said, like we're figuring this out together. Like this is a place you need to be so that we can dig into this book together so that you might know the true God, truly know the true God and worship him in spirit and in truth. Because you can worship in spirit absent of truth, but that's not true worship. True worshipers worship in both spirit and truth. Worship Yahweh in truth, but not in spirit. Jews who truly worship, and, and so uh, again, if, if you want more insight on what Jews believe, we covered it extensively a couple Wednesdays ago. Um, not all Jews are practicing Jews. Some of them are just purely ethnic Jews. But Jews that worship, worship Yahweh. They worship the same God we worship in truth, but not in spirit. And the unfortunate reality for them is that they have rejected him. They've rejected him. Here, here's, here's what we see in 1 John 2, 23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Uh, these Jews worship the way that God revealed himself in the Old Testament. But they've rejected him because they've rejected his Son. In John 14, Philip asks Jesus, show us the Father. Jesus says, how can you say, show us the Father? Whoever's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And just to remove all doubt, Jesus in John 10, verse 30 says, I and the Father are one. And this is important. This should be very important to us as Christians because we need to be assured that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob receives our worship. Because as we look in Scripture, you don't actually have to look long to find that God doesn't actually receive all worship that is offered to him, even in sincerity, right? So in Genesis chapter four, Cain and Abel come and bring offerings. Cain brought an offering of the ground and God had no regard for Cain's offering. In Malachi chapter two, the Lord rebukes the priests through the prophet Malachi and says, I will not receive the offering from your hand. And they cried to him, why does he not? because you've been unfaithful to your wife. So what we see in Scripture is that God doesn't even receive all of the worship that is assigned to him by name, even if it's offered with some measure of sincerity. He's not obligated to accept the worship that we offer him just because we offer it. He's not obligated because if we offer it half-hearted, then it is inconsistent with what he deserves. He's God. Like, do you realize what we're talking about? That would be like if you as a grown adult, not a child, but you as a grown adult, finger painted uh, a painting for the president and sent it to him. And then you got upset that he didn't hang it in the Oval Office. Like, what a silly, you know what I'm saying? Like we're talking about the, the king of the universe, the Lord of glory. 
and he is patient and kind, but he's not obligated to accept our worship, even if we offer it in sincerity, even if we offer it with passion, because he desires passion and precision. And he's worthy of that, is he not? What Jesus says about his connection with the Father, that he and the Father are one, that if you've seen him, you've seen the Father. This should be very important to us because the very first commandment all the way back in Exodus 20 is you shall have no other gods besides me. We need to know that this God receives our worship. So never mind Judaism and Islam. Does the Lord of glory receive my worship? he receive your worship because to break this command is called idolatry god takes idolatry very seriously john calvin says man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols i love this um to borrow from more recent times actor and comedian russell brand recently on a podcast said something deeply profound. I thought it was worth sharing with you. Russell Brand says, when it says in the Old Testament, quote, worship no gods than me, no other gods than me, the implication is that we are a species that worships. And if you do not access the divine, you will worship the profane. You will worship your own identity. You will worship your belongings. You will worship the template laid before you by a culture that wants you relatively dumb. This is what syncretism is. It's the template put before you by a culture that wants you dumb, wants you misinformed about who God really is. Because once you know who God really is, you can no longer remain indifferent. Once you know who he is, you can no longer remain indifferent about him. Idolatry is a big deal to God, so big a deal that it's a commandment. So big a deal that it was punishable by death in the Old Testament. So big a deal that the death penalty our idolatry deserved was poured out on Jesus, the Son of God, on a cross, on your behalf and mine. That's how big a deal this is to God. This is literally the reason we're evangelical. Literally people of the good news. Because God has revealed himself in Christ. If we had any question about what this God is like, right? Like, does he accept the worship of all religions? Uh, what, what's he like? Is he, is he like Allah? Is he like Yahweh? Is he like Brahman? Is he like Baha'u'llah? What's this God like? If we had any questions about what he's like, we need only look to Christ, who according to the book of Hebrews is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This is the truth of God's word, and it's designed to lead you into worship. You grab a hold of this truth, and what it should do is it should empower you to worship in spirit, both precision and passion. It's intended to draw you close, because the praise that pleases God prioritizes both passion and precision. So my question to you this morning is does truth produce transformation in you? Does truth produce transformation in you? Have you seen times where you've learned something new about God from Scripture that changed your life? Does truth produce transformation in you? And here's my thought. Here's my thought is we have a responsibility 
We have a responsibility to respond to truth with transformation. So if not, why not? Are we just informing our heads? Or are we inflaming our hearts? If we inform our heads without inflaming our hearts, we are wasting our time. Are we informing our heads only or are we inflaming our hearts? Don't worship him according to someone else's opinion about him. That doesn't matter. Someday you're going to stand before his throne and you're going to be called to account and it's not going to matter what you thought about him or what your neighbor thought about him or what your college professor thought about him. What's going to matter is who he really is. Don't worship someone else's opinion about him. Worship him according to who he is as he has revealed himself. And if you're not sure who that is, let me just read to you. This is Colossians 1. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in the body of his flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. That's the God we worship. There he is. He doesn't just accept all worship. We can't write a letter to him and describe him inaccurately and expect him to receive it as worship. That's who he is. And that's what he has done to purchase your ticket to an eternal party in heaven where every tear is wiped away, where you're reunited with people you loved, people you miss, where you and I will stand and behold with unveiled faces what we see now as through a glass darkly, we will see then in full. This is what he's done. This is who he is. So good is this God that he is worthy of both your passion and your precision. He is worthy that we might know him. And I'm telling you, the story is better than you think it is. I'm gonna invite you to stand on your feet with me as we close. One day, because of this God, because of what he has done to secure his relationship with you, you'll be invited to stand before a glorious throne and join with angels and with saints, with men and women who lived out their faith faithfully and men and women who crossed the finish line at the last day like the thief on the cross. And we will join in one voice, declaring the refrain of Isaiah 6, Holy, Holy.
holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And you will on that day see and know what we talk about here today, what we read about in this book. And on that day, truth will be obvious. And my hope for you is that your transformation will be apparent. Precision will be available. Will you bring your passion? Will you bring your passion to meet with this precision that you and I might offer to him a worship that reflects his worship? Worship in spirit and in truth. Would you join me in prayer? Father, you're so much better than we think you are. So much greater, so much more glorious, so much more spectacular than we think you are, so much better than we give you credit for. Thank you. Thank you. You suffered and died on our behalf that we might have a secure relationship with you, not dependent on what we do, but dependent on what you have done. Father, this gift, this gift of righteousness by faith in your son Jesus, this truth, it's a narrow road. It's not a wide road, it's a narrow road. You invite us to follow. Father, keep us on this narrow road. Empower our passion to meet precision as we seek to know and understand you and as we seek to worship you in spirit and in truth, would you receive it? And as we look forward to that day when every tear is wiped away, where we stand with arms lifted high, I pray that it would stoke in us an endurance for this day that we might endure in a society that loves syncretism, that we might endure in a society that values compromise, that we might be those who stand firm on your word, stand firm in who you've revealed yourself to be, that we might be those today who begin the song of eternity, lifting hands and crying, holy, holy, holy are you, Lord. Would you receive this worship? We pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people agreed and said, amen. amen. Thank you, Lord.